Welcome to VR Hermits, a podcast about virtual reality development. I'm Dave Ramsey. And I'm Joe Simpson. How's it going, Dave? Doing really good, Joe. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. It's been a good week. Yeah, you, uh, you, we had last week off, so it's been a really full two weeks. Mm-hmm. Um, you had a big event this week, Joe, a big, a big milestone in the general world of VR game development. What happened? Hmm. Trying to think. Oh, I'm trying to think what you're referring to. <laughs> Did I get a new headset? I, don't, I mean, I know I order a lot of headsets, but I don't think I got one. Oh, you mean the the bowling thing? Yeah, so the I, bowling thing. I uploaded a fairly well polished demo uh, or trial version of Radical Bowling. I uploaded that to Itch.io on Tuesday and Wednesday. And, uh, Joe released a game, stomping all over the lead there, Joe. Yeah. Joe released a VR game. You can go play Joe's VR game, and you should. Yeah, I don't know if I would put it in those terms because it's not a finished product by any means. Like I've marked the product in development on HIO and made it clear that this is a demo of a concept for a game that I would like to make, pending the opportunity to do so. But yeah, it's in terms of you know, hurry demos go. I'm pretty proud of it. I think it's fairly well polished for what's there now. Um, yeah, we can go into a lot of a lot more detail on it. But uh, I would I'll put a link to the in the show notes to the HIO page as well as to a gameplay footage video that I threw together on Wednesday morning. And uh, I would love for all the listeners to go and download it and try it and let me know. Send me some feedback. Um, you can send a contact form on my website or send me a DM on Twitter or just find me elsewhere on the Internet. Um, but, yeah, I would really like to know our listeners' opinion on it because I put a lot of work into it. And I think there's a lot of fun to be had there. It's far from a perfect game, but uh, it's definitely fun. I will heavily caveat that if you have an HTC Vive that's what i've tested it the most on and what it works best with it works reasonably well with the windows mixed reality uh controllers but not that great because the headset can't see the controllers when you're doing a backswing and that system does a pretty good job of estimating where those are but if you are kind of moving unpredictably you can get some weird results in terms of oculus um I haven't supported Oculus directly by using their SDKs, but if you have SteamVR in Oculus, I think it should work just fine, although I've not tested or worked with any of the controls at all, so I'm not sure how any of those map. Um, To keep it simple, the app only uses the application button and the trigger. I'm, I'm not sure how those map onto the Oculus Touch controllers, but they both map exactly like one for one onto the Windows Mixed Reality controller. So if you are an Oculus user and you have SteamVR and you want to try it, please go and download it and let me know. Um, and there is a, you know, it's a buy what you, or a pay what you want model. Don't feel about, like, don't feel bad about just getting it for free. I just threw that, I checked that box because it was there to check, but I don't need to make a bunch of money off of this demo. So please go and download it and let me know what you think. So, my first question is, how do you actually buy it? Because all I could see was a tip the developer link. 
I think that's pretty much it. You go okay. find the game. I I didn't know if there was a pay money for this thing as opposed to tip the developer because I don't have a lot of itch.io experience. Yeah. Let me look at the page in a different browser. I also found a fun bug in their client that until you click the email confirming your email address for your registration, you mm -hmm. can't follow anybody. There's a little follow Joe Simpson link and I click the link and it not only can you not do it, it has a really, really bad error message. It says mismatched token. Oh, nice. And then you click it again and it says mismatched token. And you can just do that over and over and over again. And then I go to the email and I confirm my email address and I come back and I click the follow. And it's like, you're following Joe Simpson. I'm like, what? Huh? Yeah. So I'm looking at the site. I will mention they do have a desktop app that works I haven't tried it. I don't know if I've tried it on Mac, but I use it on Windows, and it's actually really, really slick. Mm -hmm. um, so when you use the website, you just click on the Download Now button, and it brings up a dialog that says the game is free, but the, the, the developer accepts your support by letting you pay what you think is fair for the game. There's a link that says, no thanks, just take me to the downloads, or you can... Um, there's a little number field to type in. I think I have it default to $5.00 and you can add additional support beyond that and you can pay with PayPal or a credit card or you can just click I already paid for this and leave me alone. So there's a lot of options there. So you can do kind of when you're setting up a project on HIO, you can you can make people pay a certain amount and just like this is the cost of the game and this is just running like a store or you can do this pay what you want model. You can make it totally free. Um, that Walden game, they had a a minimum of $18, pay what you want above that, which I thought was cool. Like, we need to cover our expenses here. We've got licensing for each one of these that goes out. So it's got to be at least this. And then if you like this, give us some more. And I think there's a way to give more money later. So if you, I haven't figured out how to do that yet, but if you really like something that you didn't pay for and want to go back and give the developer money, you can do that too. But yeah, itch.io, there's, there's quite a few other sites like this. This is the one I've been using the most personally because there's I don't know there's just so much good stuff on here both VR and not um just tons of little fun games and that doesn't I haven't really run into the same kind of toxic atmosphere that I've seen on Steam so I think they do a better job of curating it or maybe just the trolls haven't found it or haven't wasted their time with it yet watch me get death threats over saying that <laughs> I uh was digging around when I was looking for your game, I typoed something and ended up finding uh, bowl, Ball of Duty Modern Bowl Fair. I saw that. <laughs> <laughs> Which is not VR, as far as I can tell. No. It's it's just, you know, keyboard and mouse stuff. Um, but yeah, it's desert bowling. Thump. 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 The, uh, the copy for the page on itch.io... The first two paragraphs there was written by a friend of mine at the Idea Foundry, and it's very clever. Um, I just had jokingly, like I'd been sitting there kind of spinning my wheels and jokingly asking, hey, do you want to write a couple of sentences for me? Like, sure, <laughs> sure. On a scale of one to ten, like how jokey do you want to be? Like seven? <laughs> <laughs> and he came back with this. I'm like, okay, uh, from now on, this is a service that you offer. <laughs> <laughs> 
Sounds great. So have you gotten any responses from it? Just a few. A couple downloads, a couple free downloads, a couple paid downloads. Um, like I said, I wasn't expecting to make a lot of money off of this. This was a portfolio piece, so this is something that I can link to for potential customers when I'm doing consulting or freelance work. Um, and then beyond that, I don't know if it'll ever really go anywhere. I am going to spend some time tomorrow writing a proposal for Vive Studios to see if this, if they're interested in turning this into more of a thing, because particularly with all the stuff that Vive is doing with arcades, um, mm-hmm. I think this game is, is very well suited towards the arcade experience of, you know, leaderboards and, uh, maybe not something you want to play all the time, but it's kind of fun to play with a group of friends, especially if I can mm-hmm. set up like a local multiplayer mode. Um, I think that could be really cool. So they've got a, an online application that I'm going to rip apart and try to write up tomorrow and then sit down with another game developer, publisher, and uh, get their thoughts on it before I submit it. So that's kind of the the extent of the plan for now. There's a couple of minor things that I've thought about changing um, but nothing that needs to happen right away. Like there's some new music coming. I'm working on some 3D modeling stuff and we'll talk about that later. And there's going to be a stadium, like a blimp coming okay. at some point in the future, just because I know how to do that. Is, is the new music faster or slower? Uh, faster. Okay. Because particularly in the timed mode... Mm-hmm. The music's a little slow for the level of frantic that I'm moving. Yeah. To try and bowl before the 10 seconds passes. Yeah. The uh, the new music, when it's done, is actually timed out in like 20 second in- increments. So it it gets not necessarily faster, but more chaotic. Okay. The further, and it lasts three minutes. This is how long the wave lasts. Um, if I turn this into a game... I'm going to throw away the entire code base and assets and start over. Well, sure. Um, and uh, just do things a lot differently. But this project has served its purpose as well, of, like teaching me a lot about Unity, about C Sharp, um, a whole lot about coroutines, <laughs> and, but also more about visual effects in Unity and audio. But I think it's what it's done best is kind of help me expose some of the things that I'm still dissatisfied with with myself. Um, and I think the biggest one, I get, the biggest two are 3D modeling and music and audio stuff. So the music and audio stuff I'm going to set aside from now because I have a friend who can help me with that stuff. And I'm going to really focus on trying to get better at 3D modeling because that's the one thing, like everything you see in there aside from the bowling ball and the pins and the pedestal that you're standing on, everything else in there came from somewhere else. Um, and I'm just not crazy about that. Well, I guess I made the floor and the lanes and stuff like that too. So half of what you see in that game came from asset packs and I've heavily customized it, but it's still, it's still really easy to find another game out there that is using the same stadium and be able to tell, oh, really quickly, you know, that's the thing that is in Radical Bowling. So I'm not crazy about that. Um, in terms of other design stuff, I made a lot of kind of last-minute cuts based on what we talked about two weeks ago, like, do I turn this into a product or do I turn this into a demo? 
as soon as we decided to make it into a demo that like flipped a switch in my mind that made the rest of my to-do list much, much easier because I was no longer building for good, clean code or longevity of a product. I was building to finish the demo and, and hit upload. And so that just made, basically it took what could have been 60 or 70 hours worth of work and turned it into 25 and uh, was able to just get right through stuff. So trying to figure out what I've added since we talked about it on the show. Um, I, I guess the biggest changes would be the floor no longer destroys balls. You can now bowl anywhere. So you're mm -hmm. not just bowling on lanes and if the ball falls off the lane, it gets destroyed. You can now bowl anywhere in the, in the stadium. The stadium now exists. It wasn't an arena type environment that I built with Pro Builder. Now it's a stadium that I got from the asset store. Mm -hmm. I like it's, the new uh, stadium a lot. Do you? Yeah. Interestingly, that was in an Olympic stadium that was intended for lots of different sporting events, which is why I got it. But it had the big Olympic flames thing mm -hmm. um, in between the two scoreboards. So I used ProBuilder to ProBuilderize that mesh and delete all of those faces, and I put those giant bowling pins in, in its place. So I was like, yeah, that'll work. <laughs> you know, a little bit of clueginess, but... It, 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 it is not obvious when you look at it that those are not supposed to be what five big bowling pins standing there like that's mm -hmm. it looks like that's what's supposed to be there um Good. the only thing that i'd really like out of the stadium is maybe a little bit of either motion out of the audience or if you're in that kind of an arena i think there should be flash bulbs yeah and so with a particle engine you can probably get the flash bulb effect going with appropriate speed and if you wanted to be crazy you could speed it up as interesting things happen like the strike no. happens and a bunch no, you, of flashes pick up but you you just gave me an even better idea though yeah almost a year ago we talked about the cat particle which was when i <laughs> it was a joke on the podcast that then i made into a reality by taking i made a little cat decal as a vector graphic and used that as a particle i think in unreal engine at the time for a particle emitter and then the just little cat heads would start really small and they would get bigger and float away and dissolve i could do that for the audience but you don't have to have particles go up i can just have them hover in a set area so i can just have you know a dozen particle emitters with faces doing different reactions and stuff but they're just they're just little still images like super simple <laughs> kind of flat um emoji type things and just a particle emitter of the audience and then i could uh because they're scriptable when you get a strike the particle emitters could go crazy maybe some hands fly up or something <laughs> bunch of big giant hands with one finger i don't know <laughs> Yeah, you're just not going to be happy happen. until you release the cat particle. That's so I'm, I'm yeah. just I'm not going to fight it anymore. Yeah. Go cat particle. <laughs> and maybe it's an audience full of cats. There you go. I, I, I did would... think of a version of this that you're actually bowling with a cat bowling ball, and the pins are mere cats. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'd play it. I I. Probably would, yes, yes. It would feel a little bit like the uh, corollary to uh, hedgehog croquet and using uh, uh, flamingos as mallets. Nice. From, so what else has changed? 
the uh, so I mentioned I got rid of the original lanes as I replaced the floor. So the lanes that are there now are I'm kind of proud of this because it's actually really cool. I kept the original pin manager and made that a child of a new object for those lanes. I just called it line lanes as a placeholder. But basically, um, I can place the pin managers wherever I want in that field of view. And then I wrote a little script that when they're enabled, they just turn and face the player or the podium specifically. So they line up perfectly the lines with the center of the podium. And you don't really see it in the current demo because I just have five static positions, but it allows me at runtime to just place those lanes anywhere in the field of play and then have them, when I enable them, just turn and face the player, draw really long lanes or very short lanes or anything in between. Um, so that part is really cool. And then the lasers are actually just uh, line renders. So they're, I'm raycasting out from their origin until they're hitting the side of the base and that's how long the line for the lanes are. And then I put the ball on a different layer or I removed it from the raycast layer so it doesn't actually block those raycasts when it goes through the line. Yeah, it, it looks really slick. Um, I found that like on regulation bowling lanes, there's those little triangles or whatever that are kind mm -hmm. of alignment points. Mm -hmm. I find that I need something. Yeah, I agree. Um, I find myself just kind of mentally calculating a, a part on the tiles, which is why the tiles are still there. I switched it to flat for a while. I'm like, no, the tiles are kind of helpful, like the checker tile on the... Uh, the arena floor. But yeah, there's definitely something that helpful about those little arrows. I'm trying to figure out how I could, I don't know, basically get the two points of the lasers, the, the two termination points, and then get a point in between those and offset a little bit. Or maybe not. Maybe it's just another raycast right from the middle of the lane. I'm just not drawing a laser and just drawing, just putting a, a decal there instead. That's probably easier because if the lanes get shorter, that's something I thought about using making the laser shorter as time runs out. Mm -hmm. But I could, if I did that second approach of another a third ray cast in the middle, I could leave that decal there even as the lanes get shorter. Mm -hmm. So you still kind of know what to bowl at. In my head, for the for the visual style that you've established so far, I'm almost thinking in terms of a lighter red line that mm -hmm. comes out of the center so it's just here's a line it's right down the middle if you want to be just slightly off center this tells you where to go it's kind of a bowling guide down the yeah. middle and um, i can do i can do like uh with line renders i don't have to do a solid beam i could do dotted lines or different mm -hmm. patterns okay to kind of mix that up that would be cool too so yeah, we should stop uh, stop giving me more ideas for the project. I'm just <laughs> wrapped up. <laughs> that you're trying to move off from. Um, how is the Itch.io um, submission process? It was fairly easy. I already had an account set up from buying other people's games. Um, so I went and just polished up my company profile a little bit. When I, I uploaded the game on Tuesday and then we went to a VR meetup and then... Um, I specifically uploaded it on purpose with no real copy 
or images or videos like it was just important for me to get it done mm -hmm. and kind of i always like to think that anything worth doing is worth doing badly at first so okay. I just put it up there rather than get bogged down with like perfectionism and dependencies and then i got an email that night like hey it looks like you uploaded the game without you know supplying all these assets we strongly encourage you to, up, to update <laughs> your page or put it back in draft mode if it's not done within 48 hours you're game will be delisted I'm like, oh okay they don't they don't like that <laughs> so i spent the next morning scrambling to get some videos done and i uh when i was working on this on tuesday i was at the idea foundry and i had my samsung headset and i tried to do some gameplay video footage with that but uh just not a good idea i didn't want that showing up in the video for something that i'm telling everybody to go use a vibe for right so i had to wait until i was at home with the vibe to do that and then uh, the screenshots are the coolest thing because when a friend of mine went and downloaded it, he realized that I still have the Steam VR 2D mode activated in that build, mm -hmm. which is just a debugging mode. But he was just flying around with the WASD keys and like, wait a second, that's how I can get all the screenshots that I need. So I just spent some time when I was doing that video play test, um, also just panning around pausing the game at a certain point, like with the five lanes showing, and then going into 2D mode, raising the camera and getting the angles that I wanted and taking screenshots that way. So a nice little, like I was also able to get some angles that I wouldn't be able to get in VR, like a shot of the, the single lane with the player base, um, a shot right in front of the radical bowling scoreboard, things like that. So yeah, Itch.io, um, aside from that, it was a fairly straightforward process. In terms of how you get paid, the you can set up your own credit card processing vendors and get paid directly, or you can use their payment system, which basically they collect money and you can cash it out via a PayPal account after seven days from each transaction. So I think they have a seven-day return policy or something. So after that, you can cash out... I think there's probably a limit to how much um, you can get at once or something like that. But I haven't looked into it too much. I'm kind of dreading having to make a PayPal account again. It took me years <laughs> to break up with them last time. The scars are still fresh. Mm -hmm. But well, the, other than that, it's a straightforward process. Um, yeah, it's a nice, clean website. Seem like nice people. I don't know. Fantastic. So, um, bunch of downloads? No, not really. A couple. Mm -hmm. okay. Handful. Awesome. Well, everybody should go check it out. Uh, congratulations, Joe. I mean, Thank you. even if it's not, you, you pushed back on my Joe released a game, but you released way more than I have game wise. So. Yeah, there you I'll, go. Just, I'll just reiterate to our our listeners and friends of the show who may happen to have an Oculus, go and download it and let me know if it works. <laughs> I'm really curious about that. There you go. So, like I mentioned, this project did a really good job of exposing some of the things that I'm not good at yet and I, basically what I want to get better at Um is something a friend of mine calls critical constraints from some book he read. 
but uh, always identifying the next critical constraint and then working on what you can do to get rid of that constraint. So the next one that I've identified is 3D modeling. Um, I was able to do some basic stuff in Pro Builder for radical bowling and uh, just not super happy with any of it. Like the, the arena was fine as a placeholder. I could have put more effort into that and made it nicer. I could have made something similar to the stadium if I put the time in, but I just didn't do that. Um, I also found out that Pro Builder is just not good for smaller props, like specifically bowling pins. Um, so don't do that. <laughs> so a friend of mine uh, uses Blender quite a bit, and he's actually thinking about teaching a Blender course um, that'll be at the Idea Foundry within the next couple of months, perhaps. Fingers crossed. So he showed me quite a few things over the last couple of weeks in Blender, and it's given me just enough curiosity slash confidence to give it another shot. Um, so I, I think I downloaded it last Thursday, and I read a book about it Thursday and Friday and asked him a bunch of questions and went through some practical examples. And then I spent pretty much the whole weekend having a blender bender of, <laughs> yep. And, uh, you know, just been working on a video course and making a bunch of low poly models. We're not a bunch, a handful. Um, and just trying to get better at creating stuff in that format and kind of bouncing back and forth between Blender and Virtual Studio on the iPad and in VR. And I think particularly, I, I like the idea of, because a lot of the assets that I'm making, I'm making for VR, I want to kind of block out objects in Virtual Studio and then see if I can export them and do all of the more detailed stuff in Blender if I need to. A lot of the things I'll be able to do in Virto entirely, like just low poly, uh, you know, simple household objects and, you know, tables, chairs, stuff like that I can do in Virto. But for like more nuanced stuff, like, oh, I need to make a, you know, a couch cushion that looks like it's leaning over the side of the couch. Like, I'd probably need to go to Blender for that. Um, so I, I, I want to see if I can, I think it's uh, OBJ files that I get out of Virto Studio and then pop those into Blender, work on them there as a Blend file and then export them as an FBX file. So I'm not sure what's going to happen with coordinate systems and, Stuff like that along the way. I might have some cleaning up to do. Because I think all three of the apps I'm using use different coordinate systems, which is confusing <laughs> at all. But I think I'm over the worst of the hump with Blender. Um, like just the weirdness of the controls. I'm starting to get used to it. Some of the more common um, shortcuts are already working their way into my head. And then particularly, like, being able to ask a person why something is the way it is and having them show me is far more helpful than like a video course or a book. Yeah. So I was trying to like do a mental defense for telling you why I'm working in Blender again. Like, this time I have a friend. Yeah. Well, a, in my head, that's a guru. Mm -hmm. It's like somebody who knows what's going on, who can answer even just the simple two or three questions that you've got that just help everything click and gel. Yeah. Um, it's one of the reasons why I've enjoyed a lot of the coding boot camps and such that I've done is that it's the intensive instruction that I like, but it's also just, wait a second, repeat that last sentence and clarify. <laughs> and they do. And you're like, got it. Okay. Proceed. All good. 
So, so let me send you a couple of links to two models that I put on Sketchfab yesterday. Let's see what you think. These are pretty basic, but it was kind of important to me to get stuff out there as I'm doing it, mainly because I'm the type of person who wants to look back a year from now and laugh at these things, hopefully. So I made a computer display, just a pretty basic one, and then I made three jars on a shelf. And uh, I'll put links to those in the show notes. The cool thing about the computer display is that's all one model. I started with a cube and I sized it down to the base you see now, and then I used edge loops and extrusion to pull up that beam in the back and then built the socket out of that and then built the screen out of that. So it's all one piece, basically using just edge loops and extrusion the whole way through. Huh. Yeah. That stuff is really cool. Like as soon as I learn how to do that, I'm like, I'm gonna do this to everything. <laughs> <laughs> I don't I don't think that's really how that's supposed to work, but go ahead. And then the uh the jars on the shelf. Sure. Joe got a new hammer. Everything looks like a nail. Oh. Pretty much. I think I'll make a low poly hammer. After Do it. The show. I did. I did have a something pop into my head about the. I think it was at the VR meetup, uh, Project Graveyard for all my abandoned projects. I may mm -hmm. actually make a VR graveyard <laughs> with tombstones for all of my abandoned projects. <laughs> <laughs> That uh, that graveyard could end up a little overpopulated eventually. It, it, there's got to be a web VR thing so other people can come and pay their respects. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, if we if we get to five years of the podcast, we'll we'll do a, a retrospective and just here's all the things that we messed with and killed. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think of my my jars or my uh, display? I think they're pretty slick. Um, I, uh, I'm a hundred times worse at 3D modeling stuff than you are. Um, so all the simplest of these drastically exceeds my capacity in anything like a reasonable quantity of time in any tool as of right now. Yeah, that may get that may change in the future. But today is not that day. Yeah, I guess the cool thing about both of these is they're things that would have I would have to look up how to do before, or would have taken me forever. And yesterday they both were five minute jobs. Like after working on a course for a while, like okay, I'm going to make a couple of things before I shut my laptop down. And uh, they were both pretty quick and easy to do. Okay, now see th that's pretty impressive. So that's what I'm trying. Like those are the muscles I'm trying to just exercise and like how can i get better at like having an idea and then making it and being able to get it in my game even if like if i, if I just stick with the low poly stuff i'm not mm -hmm. talking about making super great uh photorealistic models or anything like that um yeah so like we've talked about some of my pathetic genre of games and i think those the pathetic genre or the pathetic uh company the pathetic game studio <laughs> is going to use a lot of low poly assets. The trick is that you want the pathetic games to be really good. Yeah. So I think radical app dev can make pathetic games. 
Oh, I can. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I think just, I've got a long way in that course to go. This is a course that I bought last summer. It's a Udemy course that I bought when we were working on Unreal Engine stuff. And it's done by the same people who did that massive Unreal Engine course. And uh, like this one is like 54 hours long. And I'm not sure how much of it is going to apply to me. I think I'm done with about seven or eight hours of it so far. And I've just learned a ton. Um, particularly because the challenges in this are structured in such a way of like, you're going to do this challenge or you're just you're just going to be wasting your time watching the next video because we're going to use that as the base for the next video. So it's pretty good so far. And the uh, I finished the first two sections over the weekend and I start the third section this morning and guess what the third section is about? Bowling pins? Bowling pins and bowling balls. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> so this morning I, I learned how to make a Bezier curve. Am I saying that right? I think it's Bezier. But... Bezier curve. I learned how to make a Bezier curve along so we we imported a image of a bowling pin looked at it from the front and then traced a curve around one side of it and then basically duplicated that curve into a mesh where it was basically just an edge with a bunch of connected vertices bending around the side of the pin and then used something called spin to create basically extrude faces all the way around it in a 360 degree extrusion all the way back on itself and it's really cool like it's kind of mind-blowing once you see it especially as you play with the settings along the way before you actually commit the action you can just like make all kinds of weird shapes and stuff so i made a bowling pin that's a bit more complex than it needs to be i uh, misread one of the numbers and like okay we're gonna put, we're gonna put in uh 24 vertices for level of detail, and I put in 42. <laughs> so it's a bit high poly. Ended up with a very smooth looking bowling pin. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so that's that's what's been going on with Joe. What's been going on with Dave? Uh, I, based kind of upon a challenge that you laid for me a number of weeks ago, I started digging further into what's coming with Unity's entity component system. Mm. And though I still don't have it all figured out, I've got a much clearer understanding of what it is they're doing and how it differs from what they've currently got. Because to a certain degree, Unity's current construction is kind of an entity component system. It's game objects and they have components tied to them. Like, what did they do different in the new thing and why does rearranging that allow them to become so much faster and more performant like none of that made sense to me so i had to dig in further and see what was going on um and wow is there a lot of stuff going on there yeah um so let me see if i can if i can lay this out for you it's a collection of a bunch of different technologies that all end up working together to end up giving you access to dramatically higher performance. 
uh, in general, I, something, an idea that popped into my head was, do you remember the first time you made a particle emitter and it just blew like snowflakes all over the place and you mm-hmm. were impressed by how quickly the performance of that ran? Mm-hmm. And then the fact that you can like make 10 particle emitters and your machine still runs okay? Mm-hmm. It's not technologically, but end result wise, it's almost like making the game objects as lightweight as those individual particles. Like, oh, let's just make a thousand of them. Boop. And it just happens so quickly that you don't need asset pools and things like that. Um, and that's really, really cool. <laughs> um, so in general, you start out by, I mean, it, taking advantage of this is going to change almost everything about the affected portions of your game. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you're starting at the very beginning when you're actually defining properties and things like that. Like these guns have ammunition and they have a fire rate and whatever. The way you define those core elements changes. And everything snowballs up from there. So it's defining the compo- the, the properties and then defining the jobs that know how to manipulate... Or I'm sorry, the systems that know how to manipulate the properties... And then defining jobs that will run a large batch of systems concurrently or in series, however you decide. And then the compiler that knows how to put all of that together. And at its simplest level, it is totally a change in the way everything that you write has to be written. So good news number one. You don't have to use it. You, you, everything I can see, you totally have the option of continuing to use Unity exactly the way you are for mm-hmm. at least the foreseeable future and probably longer. Because this is a little harder to do. It's a little more complicated. And so I don't think they're going to give up their ease of use advantage just for this performance advantage. They're attaching the two systems at the hip. Um... The second piece, then, is um, you're probably going to mix and match in projects ongoing. So if there are two players, or one player in the game, and the player's got a big player model, and you're running around shooting stuff, and there's a bunch of aliens, there's a really good chance that the single player model will stay in the normal entity component system. Yeah. And but you might take all the enemies and put them into the new entity component system so that you can spawn humongous waves or get better control over the individual rounds that you're firing from a machine gun. You know, a, a Vulcan cannon or something like that that's just spraying rounds everywhere and you're not just, you know, draw a ray, kill that thing, it's fire the bullet, and all of these bullets are individually in the air and being tracked as they move. Um, there's also a counterpoint that uh, the chief technical officer of Unity pointed out 
which is this same performance doesn't have to be used for putting huge numbers of stuff on screen. It can also be used to make smaller scale things use less processor and battery power. Hmm. So there's a value to this, even for things like mobile games or relatively simple VR games. If you can make the power consumption less, you will have more processor power or more energy for using on other things or just reduce the burn rate on your cell phone's battery. Um, and this guy's talking about like, you make it so that all of this work happens in the first, you know, tenth of a frame. And for the rest of the frame, the processor is idle. He's <laughs> thinking on these minute little time slices <laughs> that are smaller than I'm used to thinking of. But you can think in those terms when you're doing this. Um, so yeah, the, during okay. the, uh, I think it was the platform roadmap talk from gdc they were talking about a lot of their goals with this system and the other performance by default systems that they're building and like some of the the ambitions that they have for the platform are just absolutely insane like what we want to do performance wise is just it's totally nuts like how small the numbers get and why anybody would spend time doing this but they're doing it because if they if they even get halfway that goal, it'll be like one of the fastest game engines out there. And they'll have made an accessible game engine a very performant game engine as well. Mm-hmm. And I think they're also making it not just a game engine pretty quickly as well. So. Yeah, when he was spitting out performance stats for this new engine, I was awed by the audacity of... Um, they're comparing their performance for operations to the performance of uh, mem copy. So basically copying a number from someplace in memory to someplace else in memory, which you have mm-hmm. to do like if you're going to add two numbers together, well, first you kind of copy those two numbers over to a place and then do that thing and then copy the result someplace else. Like that's in its simplest form. That's kind of what mem copy is doing. And so it's the simplest, fastest thing you can do with a processor. And he's saying, okay, it takes seven milliseconds to copy this much data over someplace. We can make use of that data for game engine purposes in like nine and a half milliseconds. Like they're approaching the theoretical maximum speed that you can get out of a processor on some of these things. So, so pretty soon they'll be writing code that's faster than not writing code. <laughs> uh, I'm going to have to unpack that one and let it percolate for a couple of days. But I maybe? I don't know. Um, actually, what it makes me wonder is if we're reaching the point where somebody is going to decide to make a game console that is optimized for games produced by Unity. Mm. Rather than Unity coding to try and target the particular platform, somebody's going to go to Unity and go, what would your perfect processor do and how would it work? Let's get just the right bandwidth lanes. I want to totally optimize this game so that Unity games just crush on it. 
I don't know that we're far from that. Hmm. Neat. Um, as so, long as they make yeah. an ergonomic game controller. Yeah. But to talk about how critically your or how low level your code changes currently in a uh, uh, mono behavior you know some script component that you're adding to a thing you might have a couple of properties and then a bunch of functions that do stuff with those properties and the game object and that's your classic object oriented structure and to start with you just stop using that (laughs) And so what you end up with are these properties that exist all by themselves that have no code attached to them. Like like no, no functionality attached to them. And then you write systems that are separate things that know how to manipulate those properties and how to deal with those things. And in the process of doing that, what it allows the compiler to do and the runtime to do is basically pack your mem- the memory that's required to store all of your game elements very, very tightly in memory so that it can pull it back out very quickly. And then the systems handle the manipulation. And then you write jobs that say, well, when I'm looking at all of the, let's say I've got like a, a thousand cubes on a plane and they're all spinning at different velocities. None of those cubes do anything that affects any of the other cubes. So when I'm just rotating all of the cubes by their particular rotation velocity, um, I can run that completely parallel. And so I can tell it Here's where the properties are. Here's how you manipulate a single batch of those. Here's a job that tells that system to edit that data in parallel. And then the the new burst compiler technology makes all of that happen very, very quickly. And it happens with almost no processor consumption. Um, That's sick. (laughs) Now... Uh, even though you have to change the way you write code to take advantage of this stuff. A, as I said, you can mix and match for, you know, use this technique in the places where it's appropriate. It also doesn't look exceptionally difficult to migrate from something that you wrote that handles 10 cubes and change it to handle 10,000 cubes by just primarily moving some code around and, adding some kind of it feels almost like wrapper code um but like that part of the you know the the game manager where you'd like oh go find me all the cubes now go to each of the cubes and rotate them a little bit mm-hmm. that code just gets restructured yeah and turns into this thing that you just go spit that out go go do this and it just kind of happens out of sight out of mind maybe almost like a coroutine just kind of, here, handle it for me. And it'll kind of do that. Um, so yeah, so I'm even more excited now that I actually understand a little bit of what the heck is going on and what you were talking about. Um, I am less excited because it's not ready for prime time yet. Yeah, definitely not. 
you can go try this, but do not use this in something <laughs> that you care about. Yeah, so 2018.1 beta has the entity component system and the job system. And the compiler, the burst compiler is experimental. I thought they were. I thought you had to download the special version of 2018.1. As far as I can, I mean, it is, it's a 2018.1 beta, but it looks like that's a thing. Okay. Because last I, last I checked, it was like a month ago. Whenever they have separate features like this, like the magic leap stuff, or last I checked this, they, they have separate builds that you go download and install separately aside from the, the regular beta track. So you won't find it in like Unity Hub or things like that. And um, they usually have a, a name after them, like uh, 2018.1 dot blah, 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 dot, you know, ECS or whatever. Right. And I, I saw some of that, but when I went looking today just to make sure that I had all my numbers correct... It looks like they're talking about that it's in whatever you would currently download as 2018.1 beta. Sweet. Um, so, so the compiler is experimental. And then apparently it looks like the compiler is going to be in the 2018.2 beta. Um, but they very strongly stress on the pages about this stuff not production ready um yeah i recently we talked a couple weeks ago about the 2017.3 and 0.4 the stable release for two years all that stuff they released the 2017.4 release that's the new stable version for the next two years and i updated to it on both of my computers and it felt very much like just like digging a comfortable hole and sitting down like this is mine now <laughs> i live here <laughs> Joey's VR nesting. Yep. I will be here for a while in my burrow. Yeah, so, that's that's neat, but I still want to play with the new toys. Yeah. I do and I don't. I've mostly been ignoring them. There's some cool stuff. Like I want to play with the the new shader graph. And I looked at it maybe two months ago, I was like, wow, this is really neat and really, really buggy. And like, Unity crashed four times in an hour. Like, not neat enough for me to care that much about right now. Especially like, I'm not doing a ton of complicated stuff with shaders. So like, anything I want, can I can find a tutorial for or somebody on GitHub has released something or something on the asset store. That's on my someday maybe list of stuff to learn. Yeah, Jason at Unity3D.college was playing with it some, and he was saying, I think it's going to be really big in, like, 2019. He didn't He didn't play with it some. He released, a, like, a three-and-a-half-hour YouTube stream where he just, like, poked his way through it. I haven't watched it yet, but I saw it show up in the feed, like, three-and-a-half hours. <laughs> just, like tinkering and tinkering so you probably had people on chat asking him questions hey does it do this i don't know let's find out and like <laughs> yeah i i didn't click the link for the video so i didn't notice it was three and a half hours he said long and slow he wasn't kidding yeah i mean that's the kind of stuff i love though just like somebody else just 
picking something apart and learning about it and not, nothing scripted. You know, just trying to figure out a new thing. Yeah. There's also some stuff in there that they have like right now it is bolted on where you need to add special attributes to the code and things like that just to make things visible to the current game object component system um, that they are they're like those things won't be required as it goes on so it's work in progress but I like what I'm seeing so far it's really slick looking and I, again I it is different from the way we currently write code. I don't think it's inaccessible. Yeah. I don't think anything is inaccessible. <laughs> it's part of my problem. Anywhere, can... is, anywhere is walking distance if you have the time. Mm -hmm. I can learn anything if I have the time. So anyway, there's a couple other things I wanted to get your opinion on. Okay. Before we wrap up this week. So Vive Pro pre-orders opened up a couple of weeks ago it, it was $800 for the headset only um, that was intended for prosumers and early adopters who already had a first gen Vive and uh, we thought that was kind of pricey at the time and then they released a bundle with Steam VR 1 tracking and controllers for $300 upcharge so, wow that's a, that's a lot of money for two year old technology and then uh they, I think it was last week or the week before, they announced um, the, or they put the store page up on Amazon for the, the full Steam VR 2.0 tracking with the Vive Pro bundle, and it is $1,500. So $1,500. So, uh, you gonna buy me one of those? Well, that seems a little spendy. Mm -hmm. um, did they, I mean, what's with the, 2.0 tracker stuff did they uh did, did they fix the problem where the lighthouses die <laughs> I, I i think you know i guess the, the the lighthouses have a much larger play area they're lower powered things like that um i don't think they really affect consumer vr that much which kind of plays into this being a pro product um the controllers are now blue so that's you know we everybody knows that pro objects come in blue, um, for whatever that's worth. Is is that is that the color of pro? I think so. Yeah. I was I always thought black looked more serious. No, I think my MacBook Pro is supposed to be blue, but for some reason it just came in space gray. Mm. Kind of makes it look cheap. Yeah, yeah, other than that, like, I don't really know that... I remember reading a blog post a year ago about SteamVR tracking 2.0, and it was mostly about bigger play areas and more devices on the single, on the two base stations. So I think they're, they're, this lays the groundwork for, you know, wearing not just two controllers and maybe two trackers, but maybe dozens of trackers, especially if they can get the size down to, you know, little pins that you put on your clothes or something. Or even like Velcro bands. I think that would be really cool. Like one on your elbow, one on your knee, a couple around your ankles. But yeah, I don't know too much about the technical stuff. It just seems like a really steep price. Um, but it also reiterates the whole, this is a pro thing. I think they just need to work on their messaging. I have no problem with like a pro version of the Vive that is made for 
you know, businesses that offer VR as a service or VR arcades, or mm -hmm. we met somebody at a, uh, an event recently who is, have, has a really cool business model that they're working on that involves, they'll probably end up involving the Vive Pro, but yeah, I just want my Vive too. <laughs> yeah. I basically want my current Vive with the resolution of the Samsung Odyssey. That's really all I want. Because I love the Vive tracking. I love the the head strap and the audio. I just, you know, after spending five or six hours a day in the Odyssey and coming home and looking at the Vive, like, oh, this screen kind of meh. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to see what the Vive Pro bundle looks like once they add wireless. Yeah. Because if that's a $2,000 box, I, I'll wait for the Christmas bundle. Like, I don't... Yeah, and there is that. Maybe these will... They'll probably be on sale at $1,500 for a couple of months, and maybe it'll start to come down after that. Or not. You never know. Yeah. Yeah, it's a bit steep. So something else I think we should check out sometime is called Hubs by Mozilla. And this is a, it's built on the web VR or web XR, as they're calling it nowadays. Uh, it's built on that stack of technologies and it is basically the VR version of conference calls where I can, I can start a session or host a room and then send a link to you and other friends and then invite you into a private area that other people can't just stumble upon. Um, and then we can all be VR avatars. So they've got a bunch of kind of silly robots that everybody can be a robot. But the really cool thing about this is it's not just VR. It falls back to 2D screens as well. So if you click the link on your iPhone, you can just join laying on your couch and you still get an avatar. You just get different controls to move around. And uh, I, I think it's really cool. It's, it's a very early thing, but I noticed it over the weekend reading through some blogs and thought it was really cool. Um, so hopefully we'll get a chance to try that out soon. And then something else we've talked about a few times on the show, but uh, VRTK has been funded specifically by Oculus for version 4, which is pretty good news. So towards the end of last year, the developer announced the end of his involvement. After wrapping up some pretty big changes, he was going to step away from it because he just wasn't able to make... A living out of it or get the support from larger developers from it and he couldn't just continue to maintain the entire thing himself but uh looks like that has been at least for version four that's no longer the issue um so he's received some funding to go on for a while i have no idea how long that means if that's another couple of years or if that's six months um he did do a live stream yesterday that i didn't get a chance to watch but i may re-watch it sometime this week but uh, hopefully talking about what the roadmap is and timeline specifically. But just knowing that it's going to be there for a while is going to make me take a second look at VRTK or a fifth look at VRTK and uh, see about using it in some of the stuff. Um, a couple of the people that I work with have been using it in production apps for a while now. And they had started to look at other options and started looking at Vive input utility and just targeting Steam VR directly, but uh, if VRT, VRTK is going to be around for a while, 
I think it could open up some pretty cool stuff for me. Like there are game ideas that I think would be really fun in Steam VR and Windows Mixed Reality, but I could still make a daydream version of mm-hmm. using the same assets and just doing different controls. And being able to do that in one package is very appealing. Yeah, now that it's now that it's got a lifespan, I, it's on my list to check out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I'll put a link to all that stuff that we just talked about in the show notes. And I think that's everything that I had this week, Dave. Anything else from you? I didn't know if you wanted to talk about the Maker Fair. Oh, sure. So we went to a place. The VR <laughs> hermits left their hermitage. Hermit hermitage? We, we went out into public in our in our disguises and uh, and checked out uh, Maker X was the name of it. Mm-hmm. Um say maker fair in oh gosh reynoldsburg ohio yep yes hey there you go um and it was pretty neat they had a lot of stuff going on um everything from the kid who was uh really interested in showing the processor that he had built inside minecraft to all sorts of 3D printing systems and people using 3D printing for interesting things in education through the people doing drone races to the robotics people to the Arduino and Raspberry Pi people to the guy who built his own R2-D2 and it was amazing. Yeah, R2-D2 was pretty awesome. Yeah, it looked like the real thing. Yeah, the uh, the big stuff of the day for me was uh, oh, and then there was the VR people, <laughs> yeah, uh, which is what originally drew us to the thing. Um, the two big ones for me were uh, the meticulous detail in R two D two and Joe trying to convince me to get a three D printer. Yeah, I poured it on pretty heavy too. <laughs> I resisted all but... of the cliche peer pressure phrases just for about an hour and a half. Like, come on, man, you're not going to regret it. <laughs> you know, you want to. Do yes. you want to be left out? The answer is I totally want to. <sighs> yeah. So, so the, I think the coolest thing that I saw, not to say anything else wasn't cool, but we came across this one booth who... Um, I think it was a, a bunch of students that were doing this, but all the students had ducked out to get food and had left some teachers or parents. I don't know who, but uh, they were 3D printing basically artifacts for blind people. So not just things with Braille on them, but I want to know what the Eiffel Tower feels like. like. I can't see it and they can't really describe it to me in terms that make sense with words. So they're 3D printing these things so people can handle them and just get a feel for them. And they're very, very tactile. And they had tons and tons of examples of stuff that they'd done, um, like blowing up snowflakes to really big sizes, uh, all kinds of world monuments. and uh, Lots of maps. Lots of maps. So like a, a map of the city, but with the, the vertical scale compressed 
pretty significantly so mm-hmm. that you could feel the elevation differences between things, but it didn't have to be humongous. Mm-hmm. Also, like molecules, different like caffeine molecules and water and things like that. Uh, so you could kind of feel the layout. Just a really cool thing. And they're, this is something they're, they're not just doing as a hobby. They're doing this like all over the country. They're sending these things to teachers as they request them mm-hmm. and being able to fulfill these requests within a matter of days as opposed to the other systems that are in place are like, sure, you can get this resource in 18 months. And yeah, that'll be $300. Maybe. Yeah. And they're able to do this for a couple of, you know, a couple bucks a piece and get it done mm-hmm. very quickly. It was just really impressive and a really cool thing that they're doing. Yeah, it was an interesting model because they basically combined on one side people who needed inexpensive 3D printing done for education and on the other side students who wanted to learn 3D modeling and 3D printing. Mm-hmm. And so everything that's being produced is a learning exercise on both sides of the equation. Yeah. And I just found that fascinating. Yeah, that's great. So yeah, that was a, a fun time. We also went to another VR meetup uh, where we talked a lot about uh, mapping. A lot of it was kind of lost on me, but uh, mapping f- specifically for AR, um, and being able to get data about the real world into computers in a way that we can actually interact with, not just in the 3D model style format, but also being able to like guide users through an environment. Um, very kind of sci-fi level of discussion in many ways but uh some neat ideas yeah there was a number of things in there that i had the feeling it was it felt like the technology that always feels two or three years away Mm -hmm. and is probably more like 25 or 30 (laughs) um that that it, it feels like it's so close but it's gonna actually take a while before it gets there and is common-ish and consistent-ish and things like that. Yeah, and a lot of what they were talking about involved pretty big overhauls of public infrastructure and streets and sidewalks and signs. And I've lived in this town long enough to know that none of that stuff happens fast. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah, it's just, it can take two years to replace the water mains in a two-block radius. Yeah. So. The idea of doing a city this size, like whole new, uh, basically what RFID tagged intersections and signs, like good luck. I I did like the part where I I hadn't previously considered it, but that once you have things like self-driving cars with all of their data collection things, the self-driving car effectively is constantly watching for where anything deviates from what it's planning to do. So it's trying to go from this block to that block and there are cones in the middle of the street. Well, it's basically got to know where those cones are so it can go around them. Well, once it's mapped those cones pretty accurately in three dimensions, that data is shareable in theory with not only other vehicles, but other things things Mm -hmm. so all of that data can move around so effectively if once you get close enough that the cars can move around in theory the cars can actually finish your detailed mapping 
so, finding yeah. all the places where anything deviates from its stored knowledge of how everything is supposed to look. So, yeah, I, I will point you again towards the book Shredded, a dystopian novel, <laughs> because Charles was sitting a couple of seats away as we're having this discussion. I kept looking at him like, they're making it happen, man. Like, <laughs> these, They're going to invent, like, no, we, this needs to be stopped. <laughs> they need to read the book. Okay, fine. Now I got to read the book. Yeah. I'm not going to say too much about it, but yeah. Go read the book and then maybe uh, get the people on that committee to read this book and do some hard thinking about it. Sure, we're not going to do anything malicious with the data, but we are getting our funding from the government and the government's going to want something in return. Like, yeah. It's only a couple of steps away from like super freaky stuff. Like all of a sudden your Tesla is gathering personality traits from people walking by and... Yeah, building personal profiles of people and how they like. Oh, we could we knew you were there because we could tell how you were walking. Yeah, because that's that's way less scary than uh, uh, snooping on every single electronic communication in the entire country. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but at least you can walk away from the electronics for a while. What if you can't even go for a walk without being recorded? Well, you just have to walk farther. Yeah. Walk where there are no cars. Outside of the smart cities. Yeah. In the in the in the dumb wastelands. <laughs> Don't that call them call. that. <laughs> <laughs> it it sounds like what we did with smartphones and dumb phones. It's, yeah. I don't I don't like calling them dumb phones. They're phones that have a week long battery life is what they are. <laughs> and they're kinda cool. They're high power phones. <laughs> They're really tiny and they're almost indestructible. Yeah, it's. I feel bad oh. calling them dumb. Yeah. Well, that's our show for today. You can follow us on Twitter. I'm VRHermit underscore Dave. And I'm VRHermit underscore Joe. If you get a chance, please like or review us in your podcast player of choice and tell your friends about us. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>